Hi, and welcome to the Brave Parenting Podcast. I am your host and the founder of Brave Parenting, Kelly Newcomb. And this is where you'll receive the encouragement, insight, and information you need to raise kids of character and our culture saturated with media and technology. We call it Brave Parenting because it takes courage and hard work to not only keep on top of technology, but then decide how you incorporate that into your family's life. Our ultimate goal here is to keep you educated and equipped to raise your tech-savvy kids. Welcome to today's show. And today we have a special edition. Dr. Margaret Mose joins us in the studio. She is a board-certified pediatric psychologist, and we're going to discuss today the subtle dangers of technology as we raise our children. How does technology affect our children's developmental milestones, not only um, intellectually, but also socially and emotionally. You know, this technology surrounds us everywhere. So Dr. Mose asks a really important question in this interview, and she says, you know, are we losing something important as we adapt to this technology? Is there something that we're missing out on in order to gain this technological convenience or comfort? These are great questions, and I know that you are going to learn as much as I did. So let's jump straight into our interview with Dr. Margaret Mose. Hi, and welcome back to Brave Parenting. We have Dr. Margaret Mose with us today. And so today we're going to be talking about recognizing the subtle dangers of technology and how it can affect young children's growth, development, as well as their relationships with parents, uh, with their peers and friends. And so I have Dr. Mose here today. She is a board-certified pediatric psychologist. Yep. And so really an expert on some of these topics. So I'm really excited to jump into this today. Yeah. As technology continues to advance and we sort of get lost in the wonder and all of all that it can do for us in our mm-hmm. lives, and we all love to be early adapters sure. to this new changing technology. What do you feel like are some of the dangers to being those early adapters and not having that time to maybe establish standards in your home or for mm-hmm. you know, recognizing the dangers that that new technology could bring? How do you feel like that could really affect children and even parents then as well? So it's interesting. You know, if you look at sort of the history of technology and iPhones in particular, really the iPhone use has exploded in the last 10 years. I mean, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we didn't have smartphones. We weren't nearly as attached to them as we are now. And so the challenge becomes we really don't know long term Mm -hmm. what the outcomes are going to be of this generation that has grown up completely absorbed with technology from the very beginning. So that's a challenge. So in a way, we're sort of in this experimental time. And the concern is that we'll get 15, 20, 30 years down the road and look back and go, ooh, we should have maybe dialed in a little bit more. Um, what we know from what some of the research shows us is that some of the technology use, particularly in young kids, does have an impact on development, attention, memory, and so forth. So there have been some really interesting studies that show that the more screen time children have when they're younger, so two, three, four, five, Mm -hmm. the more that that impacts their attention, their memory, their impulsivity um, longer term. So a recent study that just came out, for example, showed that children who have two hours of screen time time a day, so children who are four or five who are getting that amount of screen time, have eight times higher likelihood of being diagnosed with ADHD than a child who has 30 minutes of screen time. So just that difference alone is 
is huge. The difference between 30 minutes and two, and two hours, hours for our preschoolers. Exactly. Really impacting brain development. That's a time when the brain mm-hmm. is very uh, malleable um, and is kind of figuring out how to regulate itself. And so that's something that we want to be aware of. Uh, the other part of it that's interesting is as you watch the social interaction piece of it. So for a child who is um, handed an iPhone in a waiting room at a doctor's appointment, for an example, or who has, there's a TV screen in a doctor's mm-hmm. office. Those are very common now. So they're just sort of sitting there looking. That's a very different, that's a very passive interaction versus a child who's sitting and looking through a book or doing a nice spy book or doing a puzzle or mm-hmm. doing something to entertain themselves. So we're seeing more of that, we're more use of technology as a filler um, where kids are essentially passive consumers. That being said, there are some positive aspects. Um, like you and I were talking earlier, there are some programs for you know, children who have medical issues where parents can be tracking um, calorie intake or blood sugar levels or right. sleep if those are issues. So there are some pieces of that, but the vast majority of the use that we're seeing isn't those smaller pieces. So that's that's a challenge. And then as you look at older children, you know, junior high, high school, where the primary social interaction is texting or Instagram or Facebook or non-face-to-face verbal interaction, there's a lot of concern about what that's going to do to this generation from a social perspective long term. Because that's, you know, childhood is where we learn these interactions and how to relate to other people. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that you talked about how fast, because that's been what, as I did some research, you know, it took, um, you know, the television, you know, Mm -hmm. 50 years before it became, you know, a staple in every American home. It took, you know, the computer, the home computer, Mm -hmm. 30 years, but it only took the iPhone or, you know, the smartphone 10 years before it was in, you know, greater than 90% of Americans' hands. And so we have not establish this pattern, especially for us, mm-hmm. you know, as adults. Well, and the challenge is for adults, you know, we're learning these things once our brains are already pretty well formed. So our children are often learning these things much faster than we are. And it doesn't take long for them to outpace us completely mm-hmm. in terms of knowing apps that we don't know or knowing how to do things that we don't know how to do, you know, using screens. Um, so their knowledge is exceeding ours, which makes it hard to monitor right. as a parent. The other piece of it is when when televisions started, most homes had maybe one television in their home, and it was typically in a common area, the living room, the family room. Over time, that increased, but now the average home has 10 screens in the home. Wow. 10. And if you think about the phone alone, how many people have telephone have an iPhone in their room or kids who have TVs in their room or an iPad or computer, all of those are removing are being removed from the common areas and being put into private areas Mm -hmm. which is another challenge as far as monitoring and kind of knowing what it is your child is being exposed to without your knowledge yeah absolutely and so you know as we adapt as you said you know we're adapting at the same rate as kids and you know our schools are as well Mm -hmm. I mean the teachers the administrators we're all like on the same level of how do we incorporate this all into our lives it seems to be so omnipresent that we can't get away from it. That's how kids want to learn. They, you know, they feel like the schools feel like they have to be providing this technology mm-hmm. because that's the way mm-hmm. that it is. And so I think, and I really know that a lot of times schools are following into this too, and they're giving everyone iPads. So they're giving everyone Chromebooks right. and parents feel like they really 
can't do anything about that. That's just the way that it is. But so how do you see schools, you know, falling into these traps of, of maybe using technology and, and what is that doing as a, you know, as a psychologist, what is this doing to our children's ability to learn? Right. So that's a great question. And that's sort of the question, because that's what a lot of the research is starting to look at. I think um, for schools, and I can appreciate their point of view, it looks um, impressive as an outsider looking at a school, you know, so for some families to say like, oh, wow, you know, this school has an iPad per student or, Mm -hmm. you know, Chromebook per student, they must have good funding and this is great. This is cutting edge technology. Yes. However, at what cost? And my concern as a parent and as a psychologist is, are we adding something that's beneficial? Or in the process of doing that, are we removing things that might be otherwise important? So as an example, um, if students are learning to read, for example, and you have a kindergartner who writes their own story, uses their imagination, all good Mm -hmm. things. And what the assignment is, is, okay, record yourself reading this story into an iPad, and then another student will listen to it later, or the teacher will listen to it later. That saves the teacher some time in the classroom, yes. But that's a very closed reaction for that child. So I'm just interacting with a screen. I'm not getting any outside feedback. So they're writing a story, mm-hmm. and then and they're then recording reading it. it. Yeah. Reading into, it into an iPad to record their voice. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the teacher can r- listen to it later. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So that's helpful in that the teacher can then look at that on her own time or his own time. But let's take the opposite of what was happening before, what is still happening in schools that aren't using screens, where a child writes their own story and sits down with a small group of of peers and reads that story to their peers. The child who's reading the story is learning some public speaking skills. They're learning Mm -hmm. some self-confidence. The other students are learning how to be good listeners, how to have a still body, how to be looking at the person who's talking, how to be supportive. Those are more mm-hmm. subtle interactive pieces that get lost sometimes when we're using the screen, right. um, that social interaction piece of it. The other thing that's happening with schools that I think is hard to monitor and hard to police is if, if an iPad is available, it's easy per student, it's easy to slip into, okay, well, you know, Kelly, when you're finished with your work, you can do some stuff on the iPad while you wait for the rest of the class to finish. Or you know what, everybody, it's raining. So instead of going out for recess, everyone can just have some iPad time. The challenge with that is that recess in particular, in my opinion, has no place for technology because Mm -hmm. that is the one time of day children are supposed to be interacting with each other. If the message is when I finish my work, I get to use a screen well, let's be honest. Most kids are going to work very quickly yes. <laughs> to get to a screen. That's very exciting. Why That's very yes. motivating. Mm-hmm. But then we're rushing through work potentially and we're making careless errors and we're moving very quickly because we're trying to get to the reward. What's interesting to me on the high school level, I've heard this certainly within our district, but from parents in other districts as well, is that at lunchtime, everybody's phone comes out. Mm-hmm. You can't have them in class, but you can have them at lunch. Well, that's also a great crowd control because if everybody is quiet and you know, you're not going to have any of the issues that we had at lunchtime growing up. But the problem with that is, again, that is time for social interaction. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm a child who has some anxiety or who is nervous or it's hard for me to put myself out there, I can kind of hide in my phone yeah. at lunch. And then I'm not learning how to deal with other people. I'm not learning how to reach out. At the same time, if you're kind of hiding in your phone and avoiding people, 
I then am not necessarily going to approach you because, well, you're on your phone, like right. you're busy. So yeah. I'm not going to go up to you and start a conversation. So a lot of those social pieces are starting to go by the wayside. And it's very concerning when you think about a generation from now, what we're going to be seeing as a society, right. potentially. And I think that we, at least I hear a lot of stories of those who maybe got a smartphone mm-hmm. and that sort of became the norm in the you know, maybe like five, you know, within the past five, eight years. And mm-hmm. now they're in the workforce. They're out of college and the workforce and they're struggling. Yep. They're struggling to work with, you know, bosses are having to be very catering to their emotions, to their feelings, right? Mm-hmm. We've heard all of these stories. Right. And some of that could come back to really, I mean, it's not, you know, document yeah. yet, but we have to think some of those character and just sort of resiliency in a personal relationships mm-hmm. um, that's being lost. Yeah. And so we already are seeing it. Well, we're also seeing some some generational trends that are are different. So in the last 10 years, you know, as I as smartphones have become so ubiquitous, what we're also seeing is that teenagers now, significantly fewer teenagers are getting their driver's licenses mm-hmm. at 16. Significantly fewer teenagers are going out and working, um, having a job outside of the home. Fewer of them are leaving and like leaving for college or leaving for trade school and then finding a spot of their own and kind of making their way as opposed to kind of coming back home. So there's a little bit of this. Now, now can you say that that is entirely related to technology and some of that is generational? No, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to know that. But since we have seen this influx of technology, we're also seeing so this decrease in some of those sort of socially independent behaviors. There's less dating than yes. there was before. Mm-hmm. Now, the plus side of that is there's also less sex happening mm-hmm. among teenagers. Yes. That's a win. But it, that that social interaction piece of it has faded so much for yeah. some of these for some of these generations because they are there's not that same I need to go out and spend time with you at the movies or the mall because that's when I get to talk to you because I can just be texting you from my bedroom yes. and then I don't have to put right. myself out there in the same way. Um, I I know I read some of that same type mm-hmm. of material and I think, I think they call it like delayed childhood. Yes, you know instead of being like when I was 16, I wanted my driver's license right. so I could have that freedom. Um, instead, they feel so comfortable because mm-hmm. it, generationally, we as parents are kind of letting them stay inside and interact on their phone. And so they're delaying all of this. But maturity-wise, that's where all that's coming in. Exactly. Is it's just too easy for them to stay inside in their mm-hmm. room and interact. Exactly. On their phones and stuff. Yeah. Wow. So another thing inside the home, um, sort of this new technology, is um, the Alexa and other you know AI-enabled devices. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to us as adults, you know, a lot of us think that it's great because we can just, you know, ask it to play whatever music we want, <laughs> um, you know, look up, you know, set timers and look up, you know, questions for us. So it's really great. When we have kids in the home, how does that change the dynamic maybe mm-hmm. of of their learning abilities and maybe just, you know, we hear a lot of the how it's such a a commanding thing that we do, mm-hmm. maybe even a rude or disrespectful way that we speak to Alexa. Right. How do you see that in, in children as they're growing up with this device on the kitchen counter that can, you know, answer every question <laughs> in right. the world? So that's really, that's an interesting one. And we, we have no research that right. I'm aware of that looks at that yet. That's such new technology. But it is, it is an interesting point. Um, we have an Alexa at our house. She is only on for specific music requests or animal sounds because that's the stage that my littles are in. Um, and she is unplugged the rest of the time. I don't leave her on. But it's interesting because we have also taught our children she only works if you say please. And I got that actually from a friend of mine because your point about the commanding language that we tend to say, 
Alexa, set a timer. Alexa, what time does the zoo open? Alexa, when does school start? Alexa, what's the weather today? All of these things. And we talk to Alexa in a way that we would not speak to another person. Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing happens when we send a text or an email. Much easier to send a scathing text or email without, and, or to say things, or on Facebook, to say things you would never say mm-hmm. if you were face-to-face with somebody else. So our children are very little. And so for us, please and thank you is, is super important. And so we thought, well, if we're going to have an Alexa in the house, which is debatable, um, that has to be part of it. We have to still be using our manners even to talk to this technology that mm-hmm. hopefully is not connected to a real person at the other end. Um, but there's also this inherent, um, I think it's easy for that to become, to move from being a tool or something that has some fun aspects to it to become something that a family relies on for the grocery list or to turn the lights on and off or to set your thermostat. And there are, again, great advantages to that if you're coming in from out of town and you can have those kinds of things taken care of. But we have to look at how often are we using that and are we giving something else up in order Mm -hmm. to do that? Like if we teach our kids that you can turn the lights on by just saying, Alexa, turn your lights on, are we then also making sure that at times they physically are turning the lights on, you know, or <laughs> are we crazy that yeah. we have to actually, you know, like, make but our these are the things yeah. that we don't think about. It's sort of like when the TV remote became a thing, when we were little, mm. you'd get up and you'd, That's you know, right. the youngest person in the room was sent to like turn the, this dial and the antenna and then go sit down. Well, once there was the remote, everybody stopped doing that. Yeah. Um, and now I don't even think you can change the channels on most TVs <laughs> physically. So there's sort of that, what are we giving up when we do this? And And again, having, you know, we've talked about having screen-free times of day, having screen-free days. So maybe, okay, maybe we use Alexa Monday through Friday because that's a tool that we use for Mm -hmm. our week, but we don't use it on the weekends. Or maybe we use Alexa for these specific things and not for these other things. The other challenge too is especially younger kids don't necessarily understand, and I as an adult don't necessarily understand how Alexa connects to all of the different things. So you hear stories of, you know, kids who go to visit a grandparent and inadvertently order five books from Alexa or, you know, order things from their parents because they don't understand that Alexa is connected to an account that has money associated right. with it and so forth. And so we have to be able to teach our kids some of those pieces. So you can use Alexa for X, Y, and Z, but only mom and dad use Alexa for these other things or, you know, trying yeah. to set limits around that like we would with anything else. Right. Just being very intentional, I think, is exactly. probably really the key because, again, we, we don't really know. We just kind of can guess that, you know, there's mm-hmm. this device who's connected really to right. the world, to the internet. And the kids don't understand the internet. I don't know for the longest time, you know, maybe, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago when our, when our kids were little, we would really have to say, no, the computer is not the internet. <laughs> you know, they used to just think that the internet was right there. Yes. You know, the internet is just and everything and everywhere, you know, yep. so it's hard for them to grasp. It feels that way. <laughs> it does now. It does now. Um, so really just be out being intentional. And I loved um, what you say about teaching them that maybe they only, you know, she's only going to respond if you say please. Yes. You know, those type of, of just intentional choices to teach mm-hmm. young ones can just help them because, I mean, really AI devices are going to continue yep. to, to grow and be incorporated into so many more things. Yep. Now, are there, um, what do you think about the readers. So learning on an electronic screen. Now we have a lot of the Kindles, mm-hmm. a lot of iPad or, you know, Android, whatever tablet mm-hmm. apps are de- designed to help kids read. Right. Um, how do you feel about that? The, the early 
childhood learning, especially in the reading aspect, learning that on a screen mm-hmm. versus learning that in a, a tangible handheld book way. So this is very interesting. So um, what we know when we look at the research among older students, so when we look at junior high, high school, college students, what we know is that when you're reading on a screen, a textbook on a screen, for an example, that your retention and memory of the material that you've read is less. I think the studies say about 40% less than Mm -hmm. if you read from a physical book. The thought behind that is that in the scrolling aspect, whether you're using a mouse or a finger, is disruptive to how the brain is processing that information. So, you know, you read down the page and then you're scrolling and, and there's this disruption. Versus when you're reading in an actual physical textbook and you're turning pages and perhaps you're marking or highlighting mm-hmm. or whatever. But there's something about the way that the brain can do that retention of information that's more consistent with how the brain has been designed mm. to work than with the screen. Now, with the teaching children to read, this is interesting too. So before we had technology and apps and things like that, we had Leapfrog and, you know, these mm-hmm. we'll, we'll do these books and they will read to us and whatever. And that's fine. But we don't have a whole lot of research yet that says what really is a good quality educational app or program and what has more of a video game feel to it. Mm -hmm. So some of these apps that are designed to engage children are designed to to be fun and to be a game because then we can keep children's attention longer. The challenge with that is that it's very easy for what is designed to be educational in theory to become more of a game in process. And then we're learning less of the skills and more about how to play the game. And then we're triggering parts of the brain that are associated with impulse and impulsivity and executive function and things like that. So um, I have heard of some of the school districts who have put in place certain apps for math or for reading. And then after time figured out, oh, wait, kids aren't actually learning the skills so much. This is more of a game. And they've pulled some of those Mm. apps from the school system, which is reassuring. As parents, we don't have access to the same level of information and research that the schools do. My personal bias is when you're sitting with a child and reading a book, what the child is learning from you in that moment is they're physically close to you, which is good for bonding mm-hmm. and attachment and comfort and all of that and positive association with reading. They're hearing the change and variation in your voice and in your tone. If you do different voices, which some parents do, mm-hmm. that brings a whole other element to it. They're using their imagination differently. And oftentimes as parents, when we're reading a book, unless it's the 9,000th time we've read that book that day, (laughs) we tend to go off script a little bit. So, oh, well, you know, what else do you see in the field? Like the Mm -hmm. bear is walking through the field. Well, look, I see some butterflies. And do you see flowers? And you have more of a conversation about what you're seeing. Um, And so the child then is seeing how your face changes, how your voice changes, looking at the pictures and hearing the words. You might be following along, all of those kinds of Mm -hmm. things. A lot of that, if you hand a child an e-reader, and they're working on reading, all of that give and take and social interaction piece of it disappears. So are they bad things? No, not necessarily. But if we're using that exclusively without also having the social interaction, Mm -hmm. reading to a child and having a child read to you, we're losing something. Um, my, my littles are not readers yet, but they have certain books memorized and they like to sit down with the book and turn the pages and tell me the story. You know, or you pick the books that have no words, which they don't have on e-readers, and they can make up the story based on the pictures. Right. So some of that, that is still really important. 
So I wouldn't tell a parent absolutely never use an e-reader or an app, but let's not have that be the exclusive way that kids are being exposed to literature. Right. Absolutely. I think as well as because if we use these reading apps, if you will, um, and they are very game-like and Mm -hmm. we don't recognize the difference, well then that just becomes this tablet is not for helping me to learn to read. Right. This tablet is for games. And so Mm -hmm. then when they get into elementary school, you know, they still may want to maybe do a couple of education, but they just learn that that's what that is for. Exactly. Which is why one of the number one ways that children are using their smartphones when they get that is games. Right. Well, it's interesting because nobody likes to be bored. And yet being bored is a really important Mm -hmm. part of development. It's an important part of brain development. Because if you're bored and you have nothing to do, then you have to come up with something. And the reality is if I'm reading on a, if I'm doing a game to teach myself how to read and it's fun and it's exciting and it's, you know, that's all, that's all great. I'm not also learning how to deal with that boredom of, okay, this part of the book is boring, but the next part will get better. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I'm more easily going to abandon something if I get bored, if it's not grabbing my attention all the time. And we have so many lights and bells and whistles for kids now to keep them entertained. But we, what we know is that that really changes how the brain operates. And then the brain needs all of this stimulation. Whereas having them learn how to read and, and how to engage with things that don't have bells and whistles and aren't exciting and, you know, right. that's important too. And their brains need that. They need that downtime. Um, we also know that for younger kids in particular, preschool aged and such, what they're seeing on a screen doesn't necessarily translate into the physical object. So if I'm learning about letters and things on a screen, that doesn't necessarily translate to my ability to pick out those same letters or the sounds Mm. that they make or the phonics in a book. If I'm doing games about shapes and things and I can pick them out on a screen, that doesn't mean if you hand me a physical you know, wooden triangle, I know what that is. So there's not the, as their brains are developing, they can't go from the abstract to the physical in the mm-hmm. same way that we as adults can. Yeah. Wow. That's such good information. So really, I think, you know, as we discuss all of this and, you know, a lot of this is targeted to the young ages, mm-hmm. but that's, I think, where the, a lot of our focus really needs to be is because as they grow up, we need to, we're now cognizant enough that there are some issues. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I'm hearing you say a lot is, it's really about a balance. You know, there yes. is so much character mm-hmm. and growth that mm-hmm. ha- that happens in the, the physical, in interacting and yeah. in hearing mom's voice and, you know, watching, you know, dad do something that's mm-hmm. not screen related. All of those aspects um, are so important. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, the tablet isn't necessarily bad. Right. It's just about balance or the Alexa Exactly. Yeah. And so these are all tools. And like any tool, you can use it for the purposes that it's designed for and do and not Mm -hmm. use it when you don't need to use it. Um, And like any tool, we can overuse it. Um, But finding that balance of when is this a good time to do things this way? And when is it a good time to take a break from those things? Right. Awesome. That is such great information. And I know that that is information that you need. This is what we all need Mm -hmm. is just to sort of constantly be informed so that we can make these intentional choices for ourselves as well as for our children. Thank you, Dr. Mose, so much. You're welcome. For joining us today and talking about these subtle um, dangers within technology. And um, we love to have you back again and we look forward to next time. All right. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you next time. 
such great information from Dr. Margaret Mose on the subtle dangers of technology. I know I was really intrigued as she talked about preschoolers and the amount of screen time they use. We consider this technology as a filler for young children, but in reality, as a parent, this technology is a filler in our own lives too. So I walked away definitely being more convicted about being intentional and not having technology as a filler in my own life so that I can be a better role model for my children. As Dr. Mose posed that question of, are we losing something important? This technology may be good or it may be okay or neutral, but are we losing something that's better? That's an important question I hope that everyone can really employ in their homes and in their family life as this technology is all around us and you can't avoid it completely. So it is about creating a standard for balance, making sure that we're balancing the entertainment, the comfort, and the convenience that technology can bring, but also ensuring that our children are still hitting their developmental milestones, that they are becoming socially, emotionally, and intellectually competent and independent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mose, joining us here on the show today, and thank you for being here with us. If you have any questions about what we discussed today or questions specifically for Dr. Mose or myself, you can email us at podcast at braveparenting.net. For an in-depth look about how you can build this character using the technology that kids love, you can pick up Brave Parenting's book, Managing Media, Creating Character, available on Amazon. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Brave Parenting Podcast, where we believe character is greater than media and every child deserves a parent brave enough to set a new standard. Until next time, go and be brave.